This is Commander Poe Dameron of the Republic Fleet. I have an urgent communique for General Hugs. Hi, I'm I'm holding for Hugs. Hello? Can you hear me? Oh, we can? With an H. Skinny guy. Kind of pasty? Look, I can't hold forever. If you reach him, tell him Leia has an urgent message for him. About his mother. I have a bad feeling about this. This is the 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highs and lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us today is Jarrett of the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Thanks for coming on today, Jarrett. The never fun half of Wild Pretty Things. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but but I will say, especially after having a very extended, deep conversation yesterday with Lazi, I am really... Jared, I'm glad you're here because I'm looking forward to having a talk about the Star Wars film that is universally loved. It's not problematic at all. I mean, this is just going to... Oh, wait. We're well, I didn't doing prepare for that yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just realized, actually, since you mentioned your co-host of Wild Pretty Things, Melissa, that you both picked movies from the middle of trilogies. So she did uh, The Empire Strikes Back, and you're doing The Last Jedi. So way to have a th- common theme. What you're trying to say is that she and I picked the two best movies. Oh, yes. That is <laughs> that is what I am trying to say. Before we get to The Last Jedi, though, as you know, Jarrett, since you have been listening to these podcasts as they've been coming out, we have been asking everybody about their holiday season, what they're looking forward to, if they have any cool traditions or not-so-cool traditions. So, Jarrett... What are you looking forward to for this holidays in the aftertimes? So, you know, there's this think piece introduction of the idea that how the pandemic didn't change things. It just expediated the change that was already happening. And that's been true for us as a family as well, which is it's expediated me not having to participate in all the holidays. I had already figured out how to get out of Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving weekend. And this year I figured out how not to have to anything that I'm obligated to do on Christmas weekend. So I'm looking forward to um, celebrating Christmas the way that our Jewish family prefers to, which is going to a movie and eating whatever kind of random food is actually open on that day here. <laughs> we haven't quite figured that out yet. but Going on to a movie is great. I wish that our theater was less crowded on Christmas Eve because that is one of the best times to go see a movie. Yeah. I think. We're, we're actually going to, we're going to go see the Blue People movie. Mm. We're going to leave the state to do so. Yeah, that is we that is how dire so the situation I is. I didn't know there was a new Smurfs movie. Yeah, well, you know, I hear there's going to be two girls this time. 
Oh, man, could you imagine James Cameron directing a Smurfs movie? I can, actually. Katy Perry would still be in it. It would be like three hours long. <laughs> it would be it would be about motherhood somehow. Yes, yeah. yes, it would be about motherhood somehow. Is Azriel going to have kittens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something about a ship sinking. I don't know. But today, right. today is the first day of Hanukkah, but it sounds like you do mark that passing. We celebrate Hanukkah in this household, our cats and my partner. It's very important to recognize the beliefs of your Jewish cats. Mm-hmm. I, I I applaud you for that. <laughs> yeah, the, yes, the sun's indeed. gone down, so we would are we oh, are we are we clear day? to say it's the second night? It is the second. Yes, second. Okay. See, I'm learning things all the time, and all, most of what I'm learning <laughs> is that I don't know how time passes. Especially when I've been editing <laughs> podcast episodes for the last however many days. You really don't. <laughs> All right, let's move on to The Last Jedi because I know we have a lot to talk about in this film. As Sam has alluded to, this film it was definitely controversial as soon as it came out. The discourse around it is extremely tiring, but I do want <laughs> so to... Let's talk about it for two hours. So let's talk about it for two hours. Let's start with you, Jarrett. Initial impressions, is this movie good? Yep. <laughs> All right. We have a straight answer. To, to develop that, I guess I should say, for a long time, I was convinced that it was the best Star Wars feature. I've eased up on that just a little bit. Just a hair. We can discuss that later if we have time, but that's my initial reaction plus five years I guess it's taken until now for me to let off the gas on that uh, <laughs> statement on that opinion I guess Sam's is this movie good short answer I thought it was but maybe it isn't so I do want to say there was a point yesterday where I wanted to connect the force awakens to something that Charlie Jane Anders Hugo, multiple Hugo nominee, also winner. I can't remember what that is. So I'm not going to talk about that. But, lo and behold, somebody dropped into my email inbox this morning. Charlie Jane Anders. With a, a post called, What the Original Star Wars Teaches Us About Storytelling. And what she wrote is why I feel the way I do about the film now. She writes... The litmus test for a good story should be, what is it about? Essentially, what does the story claim to be about and does it follow its own prompt? She says the Skywalker saga is about the fall of Anakin. The original trilogy rarely follows the prompt. The first movie doesn't really at all, partially because he didn't know the prompt yet. We've (laughs) talked about that a lot. But really talking about how Star Wars manages to be a good movie in spite of what it says it's supposed to be about. And she ends by talking about the two, when you come down to it, there really are two important questions beyond following the prompt. What are the characters asking themselves and each other? And what does the ending come down to? The Last Jedi does not follow the prompt. And I don't know what the answer to either one of those two questions is. I think that's why my estimation of this movie has come down. I think 
Charlie Jane Andrews really gave me the way to talk about it, coincidentally, on the day that we're going to talk about it. But that's what it comes down to. We know that it's an important movie. I'm using important. You can hear, hopefully, you can hear the quotes around that. We know it's an important movie because of the way that it left turns, deconstructs, moves away from everything that's come before. Well, does the movie do more than turning away? Does it turn towards something as well? And how does that, if if so, how does that reframe the the six episodes that come before and influence the one, sorry, seven episodes that come before and the one that will come after it? Context, yeah. We've talked a lot about context with the sequel trilogy quite a bit. Like Sam, my feelings are complex. I probably fall somewhere in the middle between Sam and Jarrett on this film uh, because I did love this film when it first came out. I just thought it was the most interesting Star Wars that I'd seen in a while. It's certainly one of the bravest Star Wars films, one of the bravest Disney films, honestly, that I've seen in a really long time in terms of rejecting nostalgia, actually interrogating the nostalgia of the Star Wars legacy, asking those questions, like you said, Sam, deconstructing a lot of it. And I'm I'm really interested in a lot of the brilliant ideas that Ryan Johnson brings to the Star Wars universe. I'm especially always a fan of filmmakers who complicate the legacy of the Jedi because the Jedi suck, as we have said many, many times on this show. I think, though that the ending of the film, which I want to talk about in more detail when we get to the next segment, really kind of undercuts what Johnson is trying to do with this complex legacy of the Jedi. It seems like he kind of wants to ask his questions about the Jedi, but he still wants the cool line of Luke saying, you know, I will not be the last Jedi, you know, at the end. And like, it just, it seems like he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it too. And also, watching this movie probably for the fourth or fifth time, I don't know if the pacing works for me in this movie all the times. There's an extended fetch quest that happens in the middle of the film that seems designed to take up screen time, and it introduces a singular idea, which I think is a brilliant and interesting idea, but I wonder if that idea couldn't have been introduced in a way that actually benefits the characters and doesn't feel like it's a distraction, something that actually impacts the story as it goes along the plot of the story however as we all know i am always hesitant to critique this film because of the massively toxic racist and sexist discourse surrounding this film when it came out you know kelly marie tran especially was bullied offline um john boyega got a lot of uh racist stuff thrown his way laura dern got a lot of sexist stuff about admiral holdo kathleen kennedy of course which we've talked about before you know like they did a whole campaign on solo to get her fired because they didn't like the last jedi so much so yeah it's it's a complex film to talk about to me i think i really like this film but it's a mess and I think maybe that should inform our discussion of it as we continue to go forward. It occurred to me again after recording yesterday, I didn't really think about these last three movies overly much when we talked about doing this for this project this month. I think that we all had a really good time talking about the prequels because, you know, they're not good in many ways, and it's easy to bag on them and talk about it. 
and pull out the good things. And as I said, my mind has been changed, particularly about episode one. So I think that's great. I mean, the, the original trilogy is the original trilogy. So we had fun there. I feel like it's been a record scratch since we got to the sequel trilogy. And I, I think that really puts in, in sharp relief some issues related to the sequel trilogy. And I really, I really hate very much that the discourse from the toxic part, hard to say part when you feel it's the majority, the toxic part of the fandom. You know, it, it's, it's really hard to talk about those and then continue to separate it from legit. I mean, I feel like my criticism is legit. Maybe it's not, but non-hate directed at a person because of who they are. Right. Criticism. Right. I mean, that's the thing that Lazie was really, you know, quick to point out yesterday. To criticize Kathleen Kennedy for choices, not because of who Kathleen Kennedy is, is hard to do because so many other people have been unable to do it. And I, I think that's really unfair to just about everybody except for the people who were doing that. Because it makes it hard to talk about these films. Does your cat have anything to add to our initial impressions segment? <laughs> uh, he's a big fan of Kylo Ren. Ah, um, yes. Mainly the, you know, slicing things, smashing things. They, 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 they match. Yeah. yeah, they, I, I, do, I get it. I get it. All right. Well, I think we're all waiting for the deep dive because it's very difficult to talk about this film without talking about its individual components. So we will move to segment three. But really, is it good where we take apart the film and talk about why our opinion of the film is the way it is? I do want to start with you, Jared, because you have written here in the notes, The Last Jedi as a sci-fi classic. And I want to interrogate that term. Why do we think that The Last Jedi is a sci-fi classic? Well, I don't know if we do. Well, you do. How would you define that? For one, and I kind of meant to, I meant to say this in the segment too, so I apologize, not actually even looking at my own notes. um, (laughs) One thing that J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson do with the first two entries in the uh, sequel trilogy is continue the tradition of making Star Wars films that work just as well as silent films. And by that, I mean movies with an isolated score, watching them that way. Some of them, it's easier to do that than others. And I think a lot of that is thanks to John Williams, you know, because he is one of the few consistent elements throughout all of these films. And this did... Last Jedi was one, I don't know if it was the last, it was one of the last films to win both sound Oscars when there were still two, and I think they're both very well deserved, because both the sounds themselves and the way they're mixed and edited in the film are top shelf. But anyways, getting into my actual like outline for why this (laughs) is a great film, just going in chronological order... We've got the opening set piece, uh, which is just amazing, both written in the dialogue, but also just the visuals of it. 
And it's an example, there's multiple examples in this film, but it's one of the many examples of where the film itself is a silent film. There's no dialogue, there's almost no sound other than some score when the bombs are dropping onto the destroyer, when Paige finally grabs the remote or the whatever it is. There's almost no exposition. Like, like nobody ever says, here's the mission, here's what we're doing. It's all visual storytelling and just a little bit of dialogue that really, that tells that story, which to me is... There's very few things that are an indication, other things that are more of an indication of a great filmmaker and a great film than a story that's told without, that's told perfectly without exposition. Now I did, speaking of that opening set piece, which also does a little bit of visual storytelling to connect Paige and Rose later in the story. Again, there's never, no one ever says this character was Rose's sister. It's all done through natural dialogue and visual storytelling. But there is a classic, I guess it w- you would call it classic film that influenced the set piece. But I think, so producer Ryan has actually seen that film. And I think he's better qualified to talk about that. So I'll let him talk about that <laughs> instead. Uh, speaking of... I think Ryan would appreciate that I say happy late birthday to Hermione Corfield, who is Tally in this scene. And then she's in one other scene before she gets blown up. Most people would know her her as the X-Wing pilot that says bombs away in like kind of a slow motion shot. Um, So let's move forward to the Luke montage um, on the island. First of all, on the island is a key phrase there. We have a real location. It's actually two locations. So it's Skellig Michael and Dingle Peninsula. I may be saying these wrong because these are like Scottish names. But but the montage is basically, it's summed up by uh, Daisy Ridley later in the film. She says, I've, I've seen your daily routine. You're not busy. But again, you have visual storytelling we don't need Luke to explain what he's been doing on the island all these years or whatever. We see it through Ray's eyes. The submerged X-Wing especially, I think, says a lot. I mean, and it never comes up. He's never like, I submerged my X-Wing because I was so depressed. You know, like it's when you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's what that is. (laughs) Yeah. And the things like the X-Wing door is is the like door to his little hut. There's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, I think I'm very curious to know what you all think about the Luke storyline in this film, because in a lot of ways, this movie, if we were going to compare it to the original trilogy, like we compared The Force Awakens to Star Wars, this is clearly trying to combine both Empire and Jedi when it comes to Luke and Rey's arcs specifically. And the island is specifically Dagobah. Like, that is what this is supposed to echo. This idea of going into a hermitage. Is that is that the noun form of it? Luke becomes a hermit. Mm-hmm. And he becomes a hermit in this isolated place. And it's got, like, a force sinkhole. I don't really know. A dark, a dark spot of the force, which happened on Dagobah as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when we talk later about the throne room, 
that's going to be more Return of the Jedi. So it is very interesting that there are parts of this movie that, while not, it's not overt homage or referencing like it wasn't like I'm sitting there going oh yeah Luke went to Dagobah or like nobody said like oh just like Yoda he went to Dagobah but it's there right it's sort of that that repeating pattern as you mentioned so yeah it's very interesting like most of the things that rhyme in the Skywalker saga though there is a difference there is a key difference which is Yoda goes into hiding because the Jedis are being you know assassinated Luke is in the place where he went to try to resurrect the Jedi Order. He did not leave to go hide. He is still where, in the place where he was training all these Jedi. So while Yoda fleed the problem that he helped create, Luke is living in his failure, literally. I think a lot of Luke's storyline in this is about failure. I mean, Yoda brings that up too. Force Ghost Yoda brings that up, like learning from failure. <laughs> so yeah, that is very interesting. Plus, Skellig is just beautiful. We talked about this when we talked about the mm-hmm. end of The Force Awakens. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous place to film. I think Jarrett has a unified theory approach to this film. <laughs> and it turns out I have one too. So it's like mm-hmm. I want to wait till you're done with yours. Okay. And so it's, it's it, the things you're bringing up are interesting, mm-hmm. uh, in your context <laughs> and then the context I'm thinking. So I don't want to get in the way of that. So. Okay, Jared, I'm continue. <laughs> I think Tessa, you mentioned pacing issues with this film, and I think if there's one major criticism that I have for this film, it's that the climax in 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 terms of the best part of the movie is essentially in the second act or it's at the beginning of the third act instead of the end of the third act. Now I do like the third act, but that is, you know, probably the biggest weakness of the film, but I'm talking about, so you've got uh, Kylo and Ray in the red room and then the Holdo maneuver, all that kind of stuff is that all happens um, simultaneously partially because like the visuals are so awesome. The kind of group lightsaber slash whatever the crimson guard weapons are called fight and the backdrop of that, the just like the whole destroyer, like being on fire. And then of course the sound design and the, and the visual like kind of, it's very, it's a very anime moment, um, the Holdo maneuver, especially in the theater. It was extremely powerful and effective. But like I said, I think the rest of the third act is good. Um, you have the salt planet, which again is kind of a thing where, you know, again, the, these movies rhyme. This is at the end instead of the beginning of, of like it was at Empire. It's not actually a snow planet. You know, they're things don't go exactly the same way for various reasons. Uh, But visually it's extremely cool as well. Thinking about the film in general, you know, one thing that makes good art is having strong themes. You have themes of the amorality of war and capitalism and toxic masculinity, which if 
you've listened to me go on and on about movies or whatever else enough, you know that the inseparability of the patriarchy and capitalism is a pet topic of mine um, in this film. Deals with that. For example, you have Poe saying that Holdo is not does not look like what he imagined based on the stories that he had heard, like of her military success. On the director's commentary, Ryan Johnson, you, you mentioned this being like a brave film, especially for a Disney film, and that he was worried about introducing this like cynicism, basically about that we get from Benicio del Toro's character DJ of like, well, both sides are bad. And that that kind of felt like a dangerous idea to have in a Star Wars film and a Disney film, but that he thought it was important. And that's the kind of, to me, that is the kind of theme and bravery that most filmmakers would not be willing to put into Star Wars, especially pre the sequel uh, trilogy, I believe. I've already mentioned this idea that, that many people have brought up about how the trilogies rhyme. And I know one, another of the complaints against, especially the force awakens, but this movie as well, or like, we're just telling the same story over and over. It's always weird to me how much people seem frustrated with like, well, the other movies like just don't mean anything like the empire they defeated the empire, but now there's the first order. And I always want to think like, have you ever had a history class? Have you been alive for more than 20 years? This is the way that the military industrial complex and quote unquote democracy and all that stuff works. Like, you know, go back to the beginning of the 20th century, the world war one and world war two. And also like, it's not like after the Germans were defeated, we never had to deal with Nazis in any way ever again, organized <laughs> <Never>. or otherwise. <laughs> like, or things like, and this is not a great analogy, but you know, you guys have, and a lot of other people have appropriately talked about Lucas's obsession with like, you know, Bush's wars in the Middle East with the prequels. That's an example of the same thing, you know. Sam and I may be the only regulars on this podcast that lived through both invasions of Iraq <laughs> um, well Lossy. enough to remember well, them. But not American. In America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. I, I, um, my mom had joined the Navy Reserve not too long before, one or two years before that. And I... I had distinctly remember our little patriotic sixth grade assembly where they played the ugh, Lee Greenwood song. And all I remember was, is my mom going to have to go over there? So yeah, I, I, that is a distinct memory. And it's funny how short that conflict was the in, in, in the early 90s there, but how profound of an effect it had. I mean, yeah. I lived through it, but I was yeah. so small, yeah. I don't remember it. I'm just trying one. to agree with you. Yes, yeah. Jared, you are correct. <laughs> I think I'm the youngest person that's for a, that has a certain experience of this franchise and some things that are relevant to it. Like I don't think anyone younger than me would remem remember the beginning of the first Gulf War, whatever you want to call it, 
as vividly as I do. And I don't think anyone younger than me has the same, like, was, was, grew up with Star Wars before the prequels existed. Certainly tons, everyone older than me did, but no one younger than me really did because it came out exactly as I was becoming an adult. I think you're right about that. That dividing age dividing line being right about where you say it is, because although I have that vivid memory about uh, Desert Shield before it became Desert Storm, I guess I have memories both of the Berlin Wall falling and the Soviet Union going kaboom. But that it's just flashes of memory. It's nothing as distinct as Desert Shield and. And those are those are not very far apart at all. And so I think that that's a I think there is a dividing line there. I really have. And it's the difference between, you know, being aware of something as it's happening and being aware of it and and understanding some sort of significance to it. We also have talked about how the original trilogy is very much obsessed with the Vietnam War and the end of of that Mm -hmm. specific war. So you can always see like in these films this interest in current the current political climate, even if it's viewed through the lens of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? My question is, all of the things that you've mentioned in, in the last little bit here, what to you, specific, I mean, not specifically, especially the things that you've mentioned, to you, what do they add up to? So this is the first, uh, you know, the prequels hint at it and I think there's probably more ancillary Star Wars content that really gets into it but this is the first feature like I said definitely first Disney thing but the first Star Wars thing that really is willing to say there's no there's ultimate there's no way you can be moral in killing people in so that doesn't just apply to the Jedi's. It also applies to these group of people who are technically extraditional, like execution squad, basically like, especially because I think, and I don't know if he's consciously thinking about this or not, but I think one of the things that Ryan Johnson is grappling with and working off of from the force awakens is because that's what he's given to make a sequel to, you know, the film wasn't out when he started working on it, but he read the script. So he's making a sequel to the script, not the actual film, although I'm sure there were uh, changes after the film was released and stuff. And, you know, he's talked about some of the things that he insisted on, one being the way he developed Kylo Ren, but also I think he's reacting to a film that for the first time humanizes a stormtrooper uh, that's not a clone. I know the Clone Wars and some other stuff like that did work to, you know, humanize those characters, which is something I'm not any kind of authority to speak on. Finn, you have this element that where now we know that there are stormtroopers who are not willingly doing that. And we know that that's, you know, that's also something that, again, connects to real life. And so I think what he's trying to do a little bit is grapple with, well, what does that mean for our quote unquote heroes? What does it mean to be a hero? And there's, 
Luke's take on it. There's Ray's take on it. There's Finn's take on it. Poe's take on, you know, there's every character is, is grappling with that in a different way. And some of them, well, all of them in their own way develop over the film, either subtly or in some like turnabout way. Does that make sense? You're kind of asking me a question no, it, that I have something I haven't really completely put together <laughs> yet. <laughs> no, I, I think you have. And to go back to those two questions that I brought up before, what are the characters asking themselves and each other? I think you just answered that. What does the ending come down to? I think you just answered that. You know, I, I, I find that interpretation interesting because it does very much do those two answers, those two questions. And in doing so, says, what is this film? What does it do? Which I think feeds, I think, not only is there, are they good points, it, it really feeds into what I want to say about the film, how I see it being characterized as of this morning when we watched it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to say this. It's going to sound like I'm falling into the camp of let's just retcon everything after The Force Awakens, which I know you both remember there was a big discourse about let's just do it over. And yeah, I've said that about The Rise of Skywalker, but <laughs> I've given you a canonical way that will work. I feel good about that. But I realized toward the end of the movie today, does everybody remember Marvel's What If? Yes. The comic line oh, as the, well as the, the Disney, Disney Plus, Plus series. series. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I believe this is Disney What If. Okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. What if the Rebels Resistance did a mission and it failed? What if one of the main heroes was not a hero, but a coward? What if the teenagers weren't in charge of the whole rebellion this time. What if Dagobah didn't go the way that it did in Empire? What if the mentee goes to the mentor and the mentor's like, uh, no, we're not doing that. What if Luke's X-Wing sank instead of being lifted out of the swamp by Yoda? What if it was too heavy, too big? What if the rogue doesn't have a heart of gold? What if I could read my writing? What if (laughs) the baddie really can't be turned? What if he's just bad? What if the menacing villain checks out early, anticlimactically? Ryan Johnson, to me, seems to want to ask, what happens if I turn everything you know about Star Wars inside out. And I think the favorable answer to that question, Jarrett, is what you've been saying. And and part of it is, you know, always, what is the favorable read of the film? If I believe in Ryan Johnson's vision, what do I come up with? And I think, you know, there's some very good, somewhat satisfactory answers to that question. But then the, the other side of the doubting and believing game is, of course, doubting. What was the purpose in turning everything inside out? Did Jarrett, do you remember Syphil and Ollie? 
Oh my god! <laughs> do you, but do you remember? Unfortunately, I have to say real quick. Speaking of remembering things, you forgot my favorite, which is what? What if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires during Inferno? <laughs> I would watch that. I would. I would. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the, all that the Last Jedi is missing is um, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. But what? Yeah. What were you? What, what were you going to say about Sifil and all? Like Jesus? I believe it's Chester. I'm trying to uh, Chester who chases after the. I love Sifil and Ollie. I really do. I love that they were <laughs> they were in love with Claire Danes and Serena Altshul, which was just you could not give a better characterization of who I was at that point in time. I didn't believe in anything anymore, except how hot Claire Danes and Serena Altshul were. Uh, but uh, Chester is uh, like Michael Myers. He's an inside-out mask, or in this case, I believe an inside-out Buddha statue. So what happens when you turn a statue of the Buddha inside out? You get an existential nightmare character who believes in nothing. I think that's what The Last Jedi is. When you take a mythos that has very specific things it thinks about and cares about and go... What if none of that mattered? But I can't get past the nihilism. I I find myself reaching for what this movie is meant to do. And the only answer I come up with is that's what episode nine was about. But of course that doesn't happen. Tessa, save us. What would Hume say? Yeah. So, so one of the things that I do want to mention just because... This did come up several times in our conversation with Lazi yesterday about The Force Awakens is like The Force Awakens is a very good film, but it is difficult to read The Force Awakens as a film by itself because it asks so many questions that both The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker do not follow up on. And so in a lot of ways, we talked about how it sort of diminishes The Force Awakens to think, oh, well, this was a really cool idea that never went anywhere. I think it's hard sometimes to think about The Last Jedi without thinking about The Rise of Skywalker because, again, there's a lot of really good questions that are asked in this film that go absolutely nowhere in the next film. And I think it does sometimes affect the way that we view things, knowing like, oh, yeah, this isn't going to be something that is handled in any sort of nuanced way in the next film. I think the thing I keep coming back to is what does Johnson actually want to say about the Jedi, like as an order, as a a group of people that Luke tried to resurrect, didn't have the institutional knowledge to resurrect, and ultimately failed to resurrect. Um, what, you know, like what exactly is the point of this film when it comes to this group of people? Because when I first watched it and I first heard Luke say, you know, the Jedi were, you know, they let Palpatine get into power. They had hubris, they were arrogant, you know, they were you know, problematic, you know, they were self-righteous. Like he says all of the things that I had been thinking up till I saw this film for the first time about the Jedi. And that's great. But this film doesn't really want to talk about what does that mean then <laughs> in terms of how, how to be a force user without being a Jedi or a good force user, a light force user. Because what Luke is doing is he's essentially let this realization about the Jedi paralyze him in a way that's not constructive. So I'm going to give a quote that interacts with something Sam said earlier about does this movie do anything? Oh, boy. Which is 
from Bell Hooks, when we only name the problem, when we state a complaint without a constructive focus or resolution, we take hope away. In this way, critique can become merely an expression of profound cynicism, which then works to sustain dominant culture. That's what's happened to Luke in this film, which is a very interesting idea, right? The idea of he failed, he realized that the Jedi were failures and that they were not a good institution, and he let that paralyze him instead of it allowing him to then build something new, to go somewhere else. And that, for the first half of the film, seems like a very interesting conversation. You know, what would happen if Luke did build something different from the Jedi? What if he allowed himself to learn from the Jedi's mistakes instead of trying to recreate the institution that failed so miserably? Interesting questions. However, the last part of this film kind of goes back on all of them, you know, by having Luke say, I am not the last Jedi and Ray, you know, being like, or Snoke being like, you are more of a Jedi. And in fact, the person who seems to get it the most is the villain. It's Kylo Ren, right? Who says, you know, let's burn the past. Let's not have any Jedi or Sith, right? Like, let's make something new. The problem is, is that it's the villain saying that, and he's evil, right? And so, like, it does feel like this message starts out really clear, and it asks a lot of interesting ideas, but just like George Lucas, who also criticizes the Jedi, Johnson still loves the Jedi and still wants them to be the heroes, and he wants, you know, Luke to say the line, and he wants Rey to be a Jedi and steal the Jedi books instead of actually burning them. And so, you know, it, it doesn't feel like it's a critique that has teeth in the way that I think the first half of the film wants it to. I think the other thing that happened with me in this film is that Andor came out. (laughs) And Andor does some of the things that this film wants to talk about in a more interesting and nuanced way. It's not about force users, so that's that's a completely different conversation, but it is about class, and it is about how fascism happens what are the structures of fascism and what are the structures of capitalism and how does that those two things how do those two things interact together it does want to talk about the Benicio del Toro character whose name I cannot remember he's just always going to be DJ yeah he's just always going to be anyway Mr. if if it's a guy when there's a guy you can't remember his name is DJ his name is DJ (laughs) Uh, you know, that's a very interesting scene, you know, where he's going through the uh, the ship, you know, hologram, and he's you see the X-Wing and the TIE fighter, right? And he's like, oh, they're selling to both sides. And then what he says later, like, they'll blow you up today and you'll blow them up tomorrow. That's all very interesting stuff. The problem is Andor does it, has more time to talk about it and how has more time to talk about that in a nuanced way. So I think part of the problem is is that this film brings up a lot of cool ideas but isn't willing to give us a solution to those ideas, which is why in The Force Awakens, I mentioned that I would have been more interested in seeing a sequel trilogy that actually wanted to talk about what it means to build something new, which is often more difficult than tearing down the old. Um, And like you said earlier, Jarrett, it often still has to deal with the old, right? Uh, the First Order could easily exist in a world as a faction that's very against a new republic coming up. But it would have been interesting to see those two things together instead of recasting these characters in the frame of resistance and rebels, 
again. So that's kind of my struggle with this film is that, again, I think Ryan Johnson wants to bring up these ideas, but because it's Star Wars and because he still loves Star Wars in this way, he's unable to follow through on some of these promises he gives us. Well, is it because he loves Star Wars or is it because he was a contracted employee of Disney? Both. Probably the answer is probably <laughs> yeah. somewhere. I mean, we don't in know there. the yeah. we don't know the answer, and we probably won't for like you know at least twenty years. Or right. Whatever, but. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I don't want to downplay the ways in which Disney, as a corporation, have affected these three films. I mean, we talked about that with Force Awakens and how they basically said, "Give us new Star Wars by twenty fifteen or else," and that definitely affects the quality of these films and the storytelling of these films because no one could write three films in the time that they were given. So that's why these films feel often very disjointed from each other. Well, and also in this time period, and when I say time period, I mean the time period between the announcement of The Force Awakens and the theatrical release of Rise of Skywalker. How many directors did they fire Oh, so many. And out of how many that they hired? Over 50%. And screenwriters, JJ too. Count, JJ doesn't count twice. Right. <laughs> they, he just kept his job, basically. Does, does Lord and Miller um, count as one director or two? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Them, you know, the soft, you know, this. I'm sure you guys talked about what happened with Rogue One. I haven't. No, I did listen to that podcast. Sorry. Yeah, so just they're running together. Yeah. yeah, you didn't get deep into it, which is fine. You know, there, that's a little more complicated, but there's at least if you're going to do a deep dive on these films and criticize the directors, which I'm all for, like like I said, there's this is not a perfect movie. You have to consider the environment mm-hmm. in which they're working. They are not you know, we we don't want to get into debating auteur th- theory or anything like that. That's Don't all we've say been doing the word. Don't over say the entire it. Don't do it. series. It's all a, we've been talking about is auteur theory. Go ahead. <laughs> but you cannot prescribe that to any of the directors in that time period because there's numerous evidence that Disney was the empire <laughs> as far yeah. as right. they were the, the, uh, Darth Sidious behind these movies to some degree on all, in all cases and, and to more of a degree on others. So, And I don't think they've been that way with the TV shows. Mm-hmm. That's true, well, especially Andor. I mean, they may have been with some of the ways that they've prescribed tie-ins between the television shows, but it's gotten better. Okay, three things. Let's hope I can remember them all. <laughs> You start writing them down. Well, the first thing, I am not going to use the A word. But (laughs) something I was thinking, and I was thinking about it yesterday, because this goes with the reminder that The Force Awakens is the first Star Wars film that is not an independent film. And you can go even farther back to The Empire Strikes Back. And George Lucas admitting that he was displeased that somebody else, Kirshner in this case, put his mark on that film. 
he was perhaps willing to let Spielberg do it for Return of the Jedi, but ended up with non-guild Marquand instead, who he very easily overruled. So you've got the first, out of the first six movies, you've only got one where somebody else really had much to do with it. And to me, that really adds up to the kind of comparison, the kind of contextualization that you're mentioning, that you're mentioning, Jarrett. But I find a newfound appreciation, a rediscovered, I think, appreciation for George Lucas, despite all of his faults, which I think I understand with more nuance. Which now. are many. Yes. <laughs> but that does certainly play into what's happening in this movie, the one before it and the one after it, in, in some of, in precisely the ways that, that Jarrett's talking about. Now, the second one is to, is to little, uh, uh, zoom in a little bit on Ryan Johnson, who affects and is certainly affected by Disney, let's say, and J.J. Abrams in making this film. But going back to what you said, and I don't know, now we're like, <laughs> I don't know when. We're just skipping around this film. But, it's fine. But to go back to what you said earlier about what is Ryan Johnson trying to say? If you go back and replay that, you could, if you didn't mention The Last Jedi at all, you could splice it into our episode where I talk about Brick. Mm, but you, yeah. What you articulated is my critique of Brick. Without relitigating that, I'm just going to leave it where it is. I have not seen Ryan Johnson's second film. There's a difference between existentialism and nihilism and disaffection, I think. Hmm. And and I really think that disaffection is what's coming out in The Last Jedi as well. But the same reason I didn't particularly care for the disaffected stoner kids when I was a teenager is the same reason I don't particularly care for them now. But I will say, here's the thing about Ryan Johnson. I'm going to be looking at Looper again next year and, and writing about it. But from my first viewing of it, I seem to recall there's a bit more there there. However, I will say with time travel, it's not that hard to find the there. Because it's just such a... You can find your groove so easily with it. I love it so much. Knives Out says something. Not a lot. Not a lot. And it's not particularly original because it didn't need to be. The frame of the story was the thing. The meaning wasn't so important, but there was some there. I don't know about glass. Knives, we'll knives Out fits in your what if universe. What if yes. Corn Leghorn was a detective? <laughs> but that, yeah. But I mean, the you did nothing wrong of it. You know, it, I think that does have significance. And frankly, I think there's more significance in that kernel than there is in The Last Jedi. Or to put it better, from what we know, I've. I'm sure Ryan Johnson had real thoughts about this, but I don't know that I see them. And the third thing. Oh, right. You have third, third thing. thing. <laughs> I'm going to take control of this episode after you do your third That's thing. Fine. So go the, ahead. <laughs> no, the third thing is to bring you back, back to the bell hooks quote. Yes. Which I, it's so funny. I had a teacher in high school who taught me that lesson. Don't raise a problem unless you are ready to provide the solution. Try, he, tried, I, he tried to get me to go to leadership camp. I went to Japan for a year instead. 
he thought I would be a really good leader. So I, I got a lot of these lessons. I, I disagree. So there you are. But <laughs> I, I knew this from a really early age. And so I really feel like I've got one up on a lot of people because I was trained that way. And, it, and, it, and it's something that I incorporated into my own teaching. And it's your conclusion of well, your of your paper. So you what? can't just keep asking the same right. question. You have to conclude in some way. Well, and so that's and so that's the the thing here is when we talk about Luke as a teacher, right? He he is a we 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 really dug into the idea that most of the people who take on the role of teacher in this are terrible at it. I can point to Qui-Gon and go, maybe that dude Maybe. I don't know. He died too quickly for me to really find out. But if you'll, if you'll, Tessa, I know you remember. I know you know this. I know you live with it as much as I do. But we run into two problems very often in student writing, in pre-AI student writing, which I don't <laughs> even know. That's a whole other it. thing. I think, I don't know. Feels overblown. But anyway, one of the things that we get into is that a student is able to articulate the purpose. And that's pretty much it. They don't know how to develop it. What is it? How are you trying to talk about it? How are you approaching it? Why does it matter? The rarer, I think, problem is the one that where they are able to articulate some of those things, to answer some of those questions but never provide the framework. I don't know what your point is. I can guess, but that's the best I can do. That, to me, is what Ryan Johnson has done, is give us all the stuff, but no thesis. And Luke, as a teacher, as a director, if you will, is doing something really bad from a teaching perspective. I'm not even sure what it is he's doing. But it's, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of, of teaching. Because I think that's really big in this film, both on the part of Ryan Johnson and of Luke. And by the way, of Leia, too. Yes. It, if you don't tell your students the lessons that you're teaching them, it doesn't count. I want to talk more about Leia later. We'll get Yeah. To no, I have three since we're an hour in and I want to make sure we ha- we talk about at least three things before we sort of start turning a little bit more <laughs> into the technical part of this film. You have such a positive I know. I I I know. I love all the stuff believe, we talked about so far. I, I just want to make you. sure that I can land this plane. We can make so, this happen. So <laughs> we will not land this plane like the X-wing. Yes. The- uh, not like the X-wing either time. Um so <laughs> I do want to talk about Luke. Because you've brought him up, and I think we've sort of been dancing around Luke. We've talked a little bit about Luke's motivations and what's going on with him. I specifically want to talk about, as you pointed out, and this kind of gets a little into your influences section, Jarrett. Specifically, I wanted to talk about the Rashomon thing that happens in this film um, and the idea of failure and, uh, you know, the different perspectives on failure that we get in this film. So take it away, Jarrett. What is the Rashomon? (laughs) What the Rashomon is happening in this film? Bring up Kurosawa again, (laughs) but a different film. You can't you can't talk about the Star Wars without talking about Kurosawa. That's that's very true, which is 
this is a sub point under my larger point of Star Wars is a pastiche. And, and if I can transition from what Sam was saying and say that maybe, maybe, maybe Ryan Johnson's point is that, for example, when Luke says, I will not be the last Jedi, that's a way of saying the cycle continues. Star Wars is a part of that cycle, the pastiche of culture, of postmodernism, of we're just combining different things in different ways to tell basically the same story again. But so one of the ways that Star Wars does that, both from the very beginning, but then also with The Last Jedi, uh, taking the influence of Kurosawa and his peers who were influenced by like American Westerns and stuff like that. But to me, at least, and I am far from an expert, a lot of the Kurosawa movies you guys have been talking about, I haven't even seen all of or any of. But to me, Rashomon is, if you can only have one Kurosawa, especially to talk about in the context of cinema as a whole. And I think one, <laughs> partially because one of the things I realized I kind of knew already, but as you're talking, Sam, is that this idea that movies need to ask a question and answer it is usually not actually the kind of movie that I like, at least that I would put in my hierarchy. I, I, I mean, you I, are a Lynch fan, pull, so. <laughs> I pulled up, yeah, I pulled up my all-time list, and I'm like, that movie doesn't do that. That movie doesn't do that. Some of them you could debate, but, and Rashomon is... It's not one of those movies, but it certainly influences a lot of those movies um, because it's, for one, it's very, some people might call dreamlike filmmaking. Basically, you have this trial, you have these witnesses reporting, you know, what they, what they saw in this encounter, and all of them are different. And then the, like, final piece is that they actually have like a seance with the victim. And so you get the quote unquote truth. And it's, of course, it's a mishmash of the rest. And so you have that being used in this film. You have Kylo Ren's version of what happened, Luke's version of what happened. And then Ray is able to get something closer to the truth out of Luke. Now, I think I would contend that that's, probably not really the truth either, especially the way that we see it, but it's closer. And then you have not only that, but then you have other elements like that. For example, Kylo Ren tells Snoke that when it came time to kill Han Solo in the movie you guys just talked about yesterday, that he did not hesitate. Snoke didn't see that movie, but we did. We know that's (laughs) not true. Snoke knows it's not true also. He does call him on his BS, but he doesn't call him on that specific lie. But that's a lie. Memory is fallible. The truth is not a fixed thing as far as uh, agreeing on it. You know, memory because memory is fallible. Was there somewhere I was supposed to take that? Are there- <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you explained... The, what is happening in this in this particular sequence where we get this trading back and forth of memories and each time it's a little different. It adds a little bit more to this picture, right? Because what we get at the beginning is very different from the 
the explanation. We see the same th- scene three times, basically. And yes, what yes. we see in the Beaky first time is very different from the other two times. What I thought was interesting this time watching it, because I, you know, you, I watched this probably by itself more than I thought about it in terms of the rest of the series. And that's been the really great thing about doing this project is that I'm having these ideas that I'm sort of circulating in my head as I watch all of these films. It is interesting to, that this film causes us to question, is Luke's memory accurate? Is Kylo Ren's memory accurate? Or is it somewhere in between? You know, there's all these kind of questions about exactly what happened when Kylo Ren turns to the dark side and commits what's the essentially a school shooting. I hate to make that comparison, but that is actually what's happening, even though most of it happens off screen. And I think when you have the emo kid in the long black coat, I think you're not the only one who's thinking about that. Yeah. And so I do think it's interesting to compare this to Anakin's fall, which takes three movies to tell. And the idea that what we're told in the prequel trilogy is this is what happened. This is the story of Anakin's fall. Whereas here, it's a lot messier. It's a lot more complicated. It's like maybe nobody really remembers what happened correctly. Luke has a very specific interpretation of what happened. Kylo Ren has a very specific interpretation of what happened. Snoke has a very specific interpretation of what happened. And so it is interesting the way that Johnson is sort of saying like, no, like we can't just say, you know, like how somebody turned evil. Like a lot of different people are going to have different ideas about what exactly caused this person to do this. And so I think that that is a very interesting, again, question to ask. And I think that is a question that doesn't have an answer because it's impossible to answer based on memory alone. Okay, I have to say this. Because Jarrett brought up dreamlike quality of films and films that tend to not ask and answer questions. And then you brought up a school shooting. So just before we hit record... I was writing about Goodwill Hunting, directed by Gus Van Sant. You know where I'm going yet, Jarrett? And so, yeah. So I, I was, I was. I was just talking to a friend about this movie like days ago. (laughs) I was already thinking about Elephant, which, if you haven't seen it, 2003 won the Palme d'Or. It is a reflection on. I mean, if you want to get as specific about it as possible, Columbine. Because I would still say anything that comes out in the early 2000s that has to deal with this is still fundamentally affected by Columbine. Because believe it or not, there was a time when there weren't, you know, Mm -hmm. one every day. We were still really marked by that big example. Uh, So it's a movie that I did not like. Because I went into it saying Gus Van Sant is somebody who I really bet could make a movie that would give me something I needed. Some context, some understanding. He did it in Goodwill Hunting, you know, with 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 friends. And uh, of course, To Die For is one of my biggest what the fuck films ever. So I guess I should have known what I was getting. But <laughs> it just... It it really reminded me of of a greater even outside of the Star Wars universe a greater filmic world where there are a lot of movies like this, and that's fine. You don't have to like every movie you watch, right? Uh, Jarrett and I can have 
wildly divergent views on films, especially the films we like. And that's okay. That probably makes for better conversation anyway. Actually, this comes into my next point about Luke, and then I'm going to move off of Luke because we have to cover a few other people. This film also does something, and I think this is honestly the thing that pissed off a lot of people, and they expressed that betrayal anger in some very inappropriate and horrible ways but it is interesting that this film also basically is like you know that hero that hero's journey that we did over the the original trilogy and we talked a lot about Campbell when we talked about the original trilogy what if he failed what if like he got he only lived to be 55 and a lot of his life was marked by failure um after his one big success right in rescuing his father from what is essentially an abusive relationship high school quarterback peaks yeah and i think a lot of people didn't want that they wanted last jedi the last jedi to be a movie where luke was awesome and he was the hero and it was matrix like and you know he was able to do all these cool things with his new force powers which is so weird because that's never happened for any male Skywalker. So I don't know why. Yeah, I know, right? That. Like they, they, but I think there is a sense also. I talked about this a little bit with The Force Awakens, and I think Johnson actually does a pretty good job of pulling this thread through. There is a sense that this sequel trilogy is about ge- generational trauma, intergenerational trauma, and the ways in which Luke, despite pushing back on this thing that Yoda says in Return of the Jedi that once you go to the dark side, that's it. You can't come back. You know, it's just sort of Anakin Skywalker was genetically or midichlorianly predetermined to be bad, right? (laughs) Even though he pushes back against that in the original trilogy, because of his experience with Kylo Ren, he starts saying some of the same talking points to Rey, you went straight to the dark side. You know, there's no like sense of agency anymore um, in these conversations that he's having. And he's very bitter about that. Like, because he had this one failure with his nephew. If you repeat the previous methodology, which also failed, but expect different results, then I guess you're going to just end up living alone. And on unhappy. an island with, with a bunch of angry residents swamp, and pork. Yeah. In the middle of a lava a lava ocean, you know. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that comparison, but that is true. Failure is inevitable. Dot, 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 the rise of Skywalker. I'll finish that sentence. Okay. No, I think if, that's if the point. I think what Ryan Johnson was trying to do was set it up so whoever came next could knock it down. Sadly, nobody was interested in knocking it down. Answer your own questions, dude. Act like there's no tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about Ray, who is actually supposed to be like the main character of this film. Again, <laughs> I loved that in Force Awakens that there were really three main characters to the film, right? There was a lot of promise in Finn as a main character. I do think that Finn, although he has his own storyline in this film, does take a bit of a backseat to Rey and her storyline. What do we think about Rey's development as a force-wielding hero in this film? Rey's interesting to me because, number one, as you already mentioned, she does not, she's not afraid, Mm -hmm. which is the like turning point for so many of the Jedi in the main 
stream stories that we know, you know, Anakin, Luke, for example. And also she is like very open-mindedly searching for something that everybody keeps telling her there's no answer for. I really am trying to talk about this movie without even thinking about Rise of Skywalker, but it's really hard to do. Yeah. I, I feel like so many of my points are just like ruined by that movie. And that's kind of all I'll say about it. But she's also like puzzled about, I think she's puzzled as to why all these powerful men are like, let their feelings hold them back so much. Is that, I don't know if that's right. Is that what's going on with her? I think. I think so. I, I see it very similarly and I like it. Like the prequels, the prequels would be better if they were more about Natalie Portman's character. I think these films would be better if they were more about Ray. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. I do think this point about Ray that started, again, a thread that Ryan Johnson does a great job of pulling through from The Force Awakens is this idea of her parents, right? Like, Every single person in the Star Wars series, Rey is in desperate need of parents (laughs) who can actually, she literally has no parents, you know, unlike some of the other characters like Kylo Ren, who does have parents, but is not being parented very well, which is something that The Force Awakens begins to bring up as well. And so there is this idea that she desperately wants them. And Kylo Ren very accurately points out that's your weakness, the, the fact that you want them so badly. Yeah, that's another situation I think of. Look at who's saying it, though. Right, exactly. Right. But his whole complaint <laughs> about his parents are that they didn't parent him. So, you know, it, it is a very interesting contrast, I think, between those two characters. Like, Kylo Ren has everything Ray wants, and Ray has everything Kylo Ren wants. But there is this sense that the this revelation that her parents aren't important, right? And I remember that that was a big conversation that happened after The Force Awakens. Like, is her father Luke? Is her father Obi-Wan Kenobi? Is she, my favorite was, is she Anakin reincarnated? Which was a very funny um, theory that was going around for a while. Well, there was a, a lot of the talk was based on one of the now non-canonical novels where... Leia had twins. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. That was the other thing. Is she the missing twin sister of Kylo Ren? Yeah. By the way, I just, if, if the Wachowskis had directed this movie, I might be willing to believe they were going to say he was Anakin or she was Anakin reincarnated. Right. Well, this movie would also be a whole lot more queer than it actually is. Oh man. But I, I guess what, how, what was your reaction? Because I know a lot of fans were angry about this. I thought it was brilliant, but I'm curious to know what you think about this idea. And and Kylo Ren tells her, not thinking about Rise of Skywalker, this idea that she comes from nothing, that her parents are just a, but a couple of people who had a kid and are probably dead and, you know, sold her off and didn't care about her. And she doesn't come from like a lineage of force users, unlike a lot of the people in this film. Well, and I liked that, and I felt like that was one of the things that Ryan Johnson was trying to get at. I felt like he was trying to democratize the force, but Disney and J.J. said no. Right, and I think that's echoed later when we see the kid at the end of the film using the force, right, to sweep up. Um, There's this echo of, like, you know, just because the Jedi were all killed off doesn't mean people weren't still being born (laughs) who were force users, right? 
we also this I like the fact that you guys are going through in chronological order, but also at this point you're also in chronological release order because mm-hmm. Rogue One is the movie that comes out right before this. I know you're not, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is interesting because if you go back to the original Jedi Order, like Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't know who his parents are. Like Qui-Gon Jinn doesn't know who his parents are. You know, like the it actual Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah all, the actual Jedi are pulling. Yoda, Yaddle, Grogu. We don't know who right. their parents these, are. <laughs> these are people who were raised by the Jedi Order for better or for worse. Right. They're not thinking about themselves in terms of their lineage. Whereas these people very much are. But what Ryan Johnson is saying is, is that, yeah, like the point is, is that People are born and they can use the force and it doesn't actually matter if they're a Skywalker or a Kenobi or whatever. I mean, this is one of the themes of Mandalorian series, too. You know, so these ideas are being grappled with just one specific release uh, messed it up. In Luke's failure and his identification of Jedi children who, according to Yoda, would be too old. Yes. Is Luke Professor X? Maybe. I think you could probably draw some parallels between the two. Yeah, I'm ready to talk about Raylo. Okay, let's talk about Raylo. So <laughs> I talked about for a transition. I talked about in The Force Awakens that I think Raylo is there from the very beginning because of and that comes from my experience being a romance reader, and I'm sure Melissa and Elise would back me up on this. Uh, I think it is more textual in this. I mean, the chemistry between Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley notwithstanding. There is this, you know, uh, and Megan would also, I'm sorry, I should mention Megan because she mentioned this in the solo episode, this scene, you know, the way that he says, you know, you're nothing but not to me is very much like this idea of she is somebody that he has found romantic or not at this point, although I think you could read it romantically in the way he says we should rule this together. Um, He has found someone who he he sees as being capable of building something new with. And there was a lot of talk at the time about this idea of what if they did join up and they created like a, like a gray order, right? Like somewhere that was between the light and the dark side. And, you know, we have this lovely little romance scene where he takes off his glove to touch her. Right. And you know, all of that, all of that stuff that we romance nerds really love. What, how do we feel about Raylo in this particular movie and their relationship romantic or otherwise? I hate it. I know you do. Uh, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. You I, lesbian, I, you. I, no, I'm going to give you a couple of things that you are not prepared for right now. So okay. buckle up. All right. So you remember in Force Awakens, the film we watched yesterday. You remember? Stop grabbing my hand. Yes. That exact same energy occurs. Can you put a shirt on or something? <laughs> like it's the same Energy. I don't like you like that. Same energy. Not interested. Ray doesn't care about this. Ah. Until the end of the movie, when it's pretty obvious we are doing some sort of psychosexual bullshit. And here's the thing. I don't... I don't know where psychosexual tension fits in the Star Wars universe is what I would have said if Andor didn't exist because <laughs> I have found my psychosexual relationship 
in Star Wars that totally makes sense between Miro and Cyril. Uh, everyone's favorite fascist fuck is couple. That? Yes. So you see what I'm trying to say here. Thing. But what I'm trying to say here is I hate this. I know you do. I hate it. I don't think that's I love Ray. I love her storyline. I love this whole looking around going, is this what the Jedi really are? Because I don't know, man. I like that. It's so good. I think it should have been foregrounded even more. I do not care about this. But I do in Andor because it's hilarious. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I don't get it. It doesn't fit. And it's not because I don't think it belongs in Star Wars because I have a, I know where it does. It's just, it feels like too many things. It feels like a distraction. Oh, I think this movie is overstuffed. And there are stuff that probably needed to go. But you're going to find a lot of romance fans out here who know what this is and who love this particular trope. Jarrett, what do you think about this relationship? Again, whether it's romantic or not at this point. I can go both ways. I mean, it is very heteronormative to have the antagonist and protagonist have romantic tension just because one of them happens to be a woman. Right. You know, and then the other two potential romantic interests happen to not be white is definitely something I've thought about in all three of these movies a little bit, you know, but it, I think it, to me, it's handled well in this film. Again, there's a, there's another potentially existing Star Wars film where it's not so much to my taste, but I think it's ambiguous. There's so much, so much of it is just, just said between, especially at the end of the film, it's just a look basically. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. And that's all it needs to be. Like you can have what we might qualify as romantic interactions with a person and not marry them. I know a lot of people who watch genre films do not get that. (laughs) If two characters kiss, that means they're bonded for life apparently, (laughs) but that's not actually, again, the way the world works. So I, I like the fact that there's all these like, like you could, you can ship, Anybody with almost anybody else in this. Like, it's like oh, yeah. community, basically. <laughs> to, I don't know if that's the, is this the second or third time Dan Harmon comes up on this show, but. I mean, Oscar Isaac alone has chemistry with everyone. The complete opposite of what you could say about the prequels. <laughs> yes. Nobody has chemistry with anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think that's another thing is I do like how. I wouldn't call these films sexy because as you said, they're very heteronormative and it is Disney and they're not going to like go there in this film. Um, Although they do in Andor, as Sam has mentioned. So, you know, it's getting somewhere though. It's a little bit more than I think we get in the prequels or even in the original trilogy. Again, brave for Disney and brave for Disney. Yes. Let's talk about some of the other characters um, before we start moving into the retconning area of this. I want to talk specifically about Rose and Finn and their adventure together. I do want to focus on Rose specifically because we haven't talked about her yet. This is a new character that gets introduced in this film, Kelly Marie Tran, who has gotten a lot of flack over this character. And I think it ultimately did affect the trajectory of her character in the next film. John Boyega is obviously the person that she has the most to do with in this film. What do we think about this new character that we get 
and her story arc with Finn. Yeah, I I think it fits well into the stuff that I've been talking about where like she works for the resistance we're calling at this point. And so she's a good guy, right? Well, one of the first things she does is incapacitate one of our other heroes just because he decides that he again, just like he did in the previous film that he's not interested in violence as a end of morality. So is she actually good or not? And, and I think, I don't know that they did a great job of spelling this out, but she is one of the characters that I feel like within the film starts to really understand the complexity of the world that she's living in. And I, I think Sam, I think at some point, I think you were the one that said that the Cantabite side quest, if you will, only serves one purpose. But that's I think me. Actually, I said that. Okay, sorry. It, it <laughs> serves to be fair, purposes. I like the Cantabite scene. I just don't like the way it's framed. Where it introduces the, you know, it, in war, is there really a good or bad? And then it also introduces the idea of there are more there's more than one type of oppression in this universe her character is the one that connects to that and so not only do i think we're supposed to get that she is making the connection between what she's doing and her background and these kids that she cares about and stuff and also that she is the one who's teaching Poe about that now is or sorry not Poe Finn now I would argue that maybe Finn's not the right character to go on that journey because he kind of did that in Force Awakens already a little bit but I don't know who if you had it be two completely new characters I don't think it it works even less so it's complicated I don't know if there's any perfect answer but I think that's what they're trying to do In Star Wars, 1977 Star Wars, (laughs) we see from the perspective of the new guy come into this rebellion, hop in the seat of somebody who died, which we don't know till Rogue One, go blow up the Death Star, despite the fact that he's never flown a starship before. I know the Force is strong with him, right? This is very, this is like, it's a hero narrative. It's exceptionalism. You know there were other people on Yavin 4, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So this is another what if. What if one of the people who have been putting in work at the Resistance headquarters got to be a main character in Star Wars? What would that look like? Turns out this is it. And it's awesome. It's great. Because she takes the new guy who's the hero and tells him a thing or two. Because, you know, some people join the resistance because they have this thing called ideology and they care about things. Or they have nowhere else to go, which is also part of her character. Well, right. But she's willing to throw her life into this, not just because he got roped in, you know, not just like Finn because he got roped into it, but because her family was there until she died from it. Her beliefs were there until they died from it. People she believed in were there until they died from it. But there's a 
there's a thing about rebellion. There's a thing about these movements. They're built on the backs of people who care and are willing to sacrifice for it. But just because they're willing to sacrifice for it doesn't mean that they cannot speak intelligently and in a nuanced way. And I just guess people can't handle hearing that or hearing it from somebody who doesn't look like them. Right. And I think that's I think that's where I mean, yeah, it is base. You mean you, know, you can have more than one woman right, in a Star well, Wars right. film? It's base misogyny. It's yeah. it's base racism, jingoism. Mm-hmm. It's it's all base. But when you add it into the fact that it 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 ruffles the feathers of the narrative, it complicates it. That's just a bridge too far, right? Right. Well, I think also there's two things about this character that I find very interesting. One is, is that I feel like this character belongs in a different Star Wars show. And I mean, not that she doesn't belong in The Last Jedi. She does. But she comes from a different part of Star Wars. She comes from Rebels. She comes from Rogue One. And she gets folded into the main narrative in a way that I think works really, really well. But she reminds me of, you know, Cassie and Andor telling Jin, like, some of us don't have the luxury of switching on and off when we want to be in this rebellion, right? She reminds me of, like, Hera and the the group in the Ghost who have, they have nowhere else because the Empire has driven them out of, you know, their homes. And so that that is something that I think is very good that Ryan Johnson is bringing in from those other properties and saying, you know, no, this belongs in the main story, too. It doesn't just belong, you know, in these supporting films and, and television shows. The other thing that I wanted to mention, too, is we've been talking about how straight this movie is and how if this movie was made by the Wachowskis, that it would be a very different kind of movie. What she says at the end is straight out of a Wachowski movie, right? We're not going to win by fighting what we hate, but by saving what we love, which is a very queer statement, right? It is very much a not straight, you know, cis patriarchal type of statement. It's very much about queering the norm, even though, you know, what she's talking about is Finn, which is a straight relationship. It's very strange to find this character in a Star Wars film um, because she does exist, you know, in a in a place that Star Wars doesn't generally like to go in its main storyline. I do agree with you, though. I think that despite the fact that John Boyega's character, Finn, does have a storyline in this, he's starting to be pushed to the side in a way that gets even more exacerbated in Rise of Skywalker. Um, and I think that's what ultimately angered a lot of people who were fans of his character, that his 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 storylines are starting to be like relegated to the background. Finally, before we move on, we do have to talk about Holdo and Poe and Leia, who are sort of having a, a brief power struggle over how um, how the resistance conducts itself in this moment of crisis. Sam, we'll start with you. Oh boy! The the oh Holdo Leia Poe trifecta. They're not a they're not a thruple because Poe isn't a thruple with Finn and Rose at this point. I've accepted your thruple, Sam, but. They are a trifecta of people who are trying to work together and failing miserably in this film. Well, they're all wrong. Yes. There's nobody who's doing the right thing in this trio of people, except they're also all doing the right thing. I don't, My favorite I don't kind know, of disagreement. I don't know how they manage that, but they're all right and all wrong at the same time. Because, here's why. Poe is right. If that's your plan... That plan is shit. He's wrong because that's not his, that's not their plan. <laughs> and he doesn't know that. Leia's right 
because it's a good plan. Leia's wrong because it doesn't count if you don't tell anybody. They need to like show Doctor Strange love to the resistance. The 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 point here is that you know Leia feels like Poe doesn't need to know everything. Which, sure, in a military or political chain of command, that might be true. Do you want Poe to do the right thing or don't you? I'm beginning to see why Ben Solo had a problem with his parents. Because this is, if this, if your dad couldn't stand being at home, if your mom acted like this, and if Luke was Luke, no wonder. I totally get it. Have we learned nothing about gifted children? Uh, no, we not in this anything? series. We don't and, learn anything about parenting or gifted children right. in this series. So, and and Holdo, pretty much, I don't think does much differently from Leia in terms of the getting credit department, except for the fact that she got a battlefield promotion. So I'm willing, I'm willing to cut her a little slack for that. And her plan is brilliant. Oh, and sure. the Holdo maneuver again one of the most visually arresting parts of the but film the, and the fact that she sacrifices herself for them is pretty cool. But here's the thing. The resistance doesn't have committees yes. at all. There are no committees. <laughs> they are a band of freedom fighters. By this point, you know how much of a buster Mon Mothma was. Why would you try to repeat that? Yeah. Why would you do that, I, Tessa? Tell well, me why. I think Holdo is the opposite of Mon Mothma, actually, in the way that she fights. Not that we would know uh, till the end. Yeah, exactly. I don't like drama that can be avoided by people talking to each other, which I feel like is half of this problem. Um, I feel like everybody just needs to sit down and have an actual communication issue. It goes back to the Star Wars' pastiche thing, though, because Star yeah. Wars... Because Kurosawa is Shakespeare, or maybe it's directly that Star Wars is very Shakespearean. Oh, yes. And it's very melodramatic, too, um, which it, uh, which is its strength, um, but sometimes it's, it's failing. I don't really see the purpose that Holdo has in not telling Poe about her plan, other than just like she doesn't like him, which is weird because she says that she does like him at the end of the film. It would have been very easy to be like, I do have a plan. This is what we're doing. And, you know, I would understand it if the plan resided on him not knowing, which could have been very, like, more of an interesting tension. Like, you're not going to, like, nobody can know what this plan is or something like that. Um, So this, the the conflict between the two of them does seem a little artificially put into place. However, the ideas of their conflict are not. Um, The idea of you know, him being very rash and reckless and very like Luke in The Emperor Strikes Back and wanting to just fly in. And, you know, he's so ready to sacrifice himself and other people that he doesn't think about, you know, the the smart way of doing things. He wants to do things with brute force that could be accomplished perhaps with a scalpel. And Holdo is very aware of that. Um, and there is there is something about mentorship that's happening in this film, right? And Luke rejecting the position of being the mentor, but Leia accepting it, but perhaps not doing a great job. I, I do like the idea that Leia is raising Poe to be, you know, the, the next leader of the resistance. I do think that that's a very interesting relationship between the two of them. And I kind of wish that this film would have invested in it more. 
Um, unfortunately, we get Leia in a coma for most of the film, so we don't get to see her like actually do a lot. That place that's is a, taken. That's Miss Song, by the way. Leia in a coma. Leia in a coma. You're actually here, Jarrett. Real time. There um, it was. Leia in a coma. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention, and this just is a completely just funny thing, is that for Finn, the events of The Force Awakens were literally yesterday because he's been in a coma since the end of that movie. So like for him... All of that stuff just happened, unlike, you know, for the rest of the people in this film. By the way, I just really quickly, when you said brute force or a scalpel, Mm -hmm. in my mind, the most, I I thought something very specific that I would say, and then I realized Poe would also say it too, and I think that tells you a lot. You can use brute force with a scalpel. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can like, actually do both. There's a time for both <laughs> strategies. You just have to, if you're going to be a successful leader, you have to learn to pick your moments, right? And that, I think, is what both Leia and Holdo, because Holdo does the Holdo maneuver, which I don't think you can get a more brute force than somebody like, you know, going to uh, into hyperdrive through a whole fleet of people. But the whole point is you have to pick and you have to know when to sacrifice and when to retreat and when to save life and when to fight. And and Poe just needs to learn that. And I think Finn needs to learn that, too, because that happens at the end of the film with Finn, um, where he kind of has a reversal from the guy who wants to run away at the beginning to the guy who's about to literally drive into like this laser cannon, which once again is based on Death Star tech. Can we please stop talking about the Death Star in these films? God. Again, it's kind of like saying, why is every uh, military debate we have at some point about nuclear weapons? Yeah, I don't. So, yeah, but as I told Lassie, right? As I told Lassie, though, like just because it's realistic doesn't always mean it's good storytelling. Oh, no. Yeah, I I, I get it. And there's so many things in this movie that people nitpick where I'm like, well, it's like this and it's like this. And yes, I really i am also often the one who's like it's a movie yeah that's why (laughs) so and i'm usually like that too i mean i i don't like to nitpick it's literally just because it's a thing in other movies that i have a problem with it like it's like we have watched movies that we have watched in a row with the death star rogue one star wars there's a brief break for empire the Return of the Jedi, The Force Awakens, this movie. <laughs> That's five out of mm. six movies <laughs> that have mentioned this particular thing in a way that I don't think is necessary. Anyway, let's move on to our next segment since we are an hour and 50 minutes now. I think we've talked a lot about, about a lot of good things, and we'll talk a little bit more about the film in the last segment. But I did want to go, meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine. Jarrett, you have actually done more of this homework than we have. We have only gotten through a few of the Visions episodes uh, because we just haven't had time. There's only so many hours in a day. But I am very interested in your Visions rankings. Let me, if I may, we're just going to let Jarrett have this one. Yes. (laughs) I want to frame letting you have it with the following question. I understand the concept behind visions. I, in theory, like the idea of giving artists the ability to play in the Star Wars universe. I understand the value of that, but I don't like it. Why am I wrong? For the record, I think Sam is wrong too, but Jared- I know I'm wrong. (laughs) I I understand that, but I want to know why. I think partially because you just don't like anime, right? 
Am I wrong about I, that? I think you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Oh, thank you. You, you <laughs> turn a thing I like into a thing I don't like, explain why I don't like it. <laughs> you know? Wow, that really solves a lot of problems about life, too. Just like, take a thing I like and turn it into something I don't like. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, oh. if you like Star Wars and don't like anime, do not watch Visions. It's not for you. It's very skippable. <laughs> and it's not canon, right? It's it's kind of like... Not only is it not canon, like there's no character overlap at all. Right. It's like an anthology. A lot of it is attaching just Star Wars vo- vocabulary to other stories. And I think, you know, as I if I go through the list, I'll explain what I mean by that if we're ready to do we're that. We're ready. We're ready. So talking more about Star Wars being pastiche partially of Asian influences. If I can plug Wild Pretty Things, we kind of talked about this same thing on the podcast over there when Tessa and Sam joined us to talk about Ghost in the Shell, which is why I know that Sam doesn't really like anime. <laughs> <laughs> I feel heard. Thank you so much. <laughs> So the concept of visions, and I think if you want to be cynical, the concept of visions is how can we get people in Asia more interested in Star Wars? But if we want to think about it from an artistic point of view of Star Wars is so is so in, in debt to Asian cinema and Asian filmmakers and the influence of martial arts cinema and wushu and all these things like that. Both the original trilogy, but it continues to be influenced by those things, right? Just like the Wachowskis, to mention them one more time. But it's like it's a it's a collection of shorts where each short is made by a different anime studio. And a lot of times it's people who like there's some of the directors and writers here that this is basically their only credit outside of like animation department. So it's giving an opportunity to people who no one would have really heard of, certainly outside of Japan and probably even in Japan, unless they're a real otaku or something like that. But so I, I did a, a ranking. I did watch them all. And I'm not an anime authority by any sense of the word. So the one that I have, uh, do we want to go highest to lowest or lowest to highest? Go lowest to highest. Okay, so at the lowest, and these are just my personal rankings, I have The Elder. It's not necessarily a bad story. I have it lowest because the dialogue is horrible, and I think that might be a translation thing. I'm not sure who to blame for that. Um, And then also, I I don't don't really like the animation style of that particular one, but it is done by one of the people who worked on Garon Logon, if anyone listening knows what that is. Um, <laughs> next, I have Tant- Tatooine Rhapsody, which is very silly. Is that the one it's about the band? Yes. I loved yeah. that one. That's one of the ones we watched. <laughs> and I don't think, I want to say, I don't think any of these are bad. Like, they all have some kind of redeeming quality. It's very silly. It ha- if you know if you like Scott Pilgrim, it has that kind of vibe. Um, next, I have Akakiri. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, which has a very like turn of the century anime vibe that I'm familiar with. Which is maybe why it didn't do much for me, is because it's like, yeah, I'd rather just watch Samurai Shampoo. Then we have the Duel, and this is where I think we're going up in like 
a tier where I think the, these are actually ones that I would start recommending people watch. So the duel is by Takashi Okazaki. This feels like, uh, speaking of pastiche, uh, Afro Samurai, again, if anybody knows what that is, which is like an Americanized anime. But what if it were an Aphex Twin video that's based on Seven Samurai, but then Kenji Kawai from Ghost in the Shell did the score? (laughs) (laughs) So it's a pastiche of a pastiche. Yeah, but it's cool because it's animated, but it's black and white. Oh. I, and I dug that. But it's very, the storyline is very Sam, Seven Samurai, but with Jedi and Sith and stuff. Um, then I have uh, Lop and Ocho. This is the most anime in tone, I would say, like what people think of as anime. For example, the main character is a rabbit human hybrid kind of thing. Oh, wow. That one's decent. Uh, we have. Toby, but it's T-O-B-1 is the character's name. He is an android. It's kind of a little bit of a Pinocchio type story because it's about an android who dreams of being not an electric sheep, but dreams of being a Jedi. It's the style and the tone is very cute, even though it's a bittersweet story. So it kind of has that Pixar thing going on, even though it's not 3D animated, it's 2D animation, which all these are. Then we have the ninth Jedi. Uh, this is uh, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention that Cam uh, Toby is uh, Abel uh, Gora, who is I think directing somehow involved in the Scott Pilgrim animated show that's going to be on Netflix. So the ninth Jedi. This is Kenji Kamiyana. He worked on Eden of the East, some people might know, but also worked on the Ghost in the Shell TV series, did one of the Blade Runner shorts as well that you can find on YouTube or on the Blu-ray if you have that. It's kind of like waiting for Godot, but with Jedi in a way. <laughs> Jedi and Sith. That's not something I would have put together. <laughs> yeah. There's more to it than that, but... Remember, these are all shorts, so they can't be too complicated. One that I really enjoyed, so these next two, these are like the top tier for me. So there's, and they're on the opposite end of the anime spectrum. So The Twins by Hiroki uh, Imiyashi, again, worked on Gurren Lagann, but this is the one that's like full on extreme anime, like Neon Genesis Evangelion, just like crazy nut stuff for example these are shorts i don't think there's really any way to spoil it but there is a moment where one of the characters cuts a destroyer in half with a gigantic lightsaber basically (laughs) i we this was one of the ones that we watched and it is like a what if dark leia and luke like what if they like even down to the droids, which one of each one of them has like a custody of one of the droids, which is really <laughs> yes. it's a very interesting idea. Uh, and then the one I have at number one is called The Village Bride uh, because it's has really Miyazaki feels to it. But this is Hitoshi Hagi. It's H-A-G-E. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but this uh, he is an animator who has worked with Satoshi Khan, who is Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, like some of the best anime features of the last couple decades. The best way to explain him is that he's like the David Lynch of anime. 
Interesting. So <laughs> not necessarily in reputation or in like budget level or anything, but more so in like subject matter and storytelling methods. That's uh, Star Wars Visions and Perfect. season two is coming next year. Oh, I didn't know two, there was a season two. I should definitely finish them. I, I really enjoyed the ones that I've watched. I think I've watched about four at this point. Let's move on to segment five, Max Rebo's Retcon Corner, which Jarrett has most of the notes. I don't usually put notes in this one. Do you have anything you want to add, Sam, well, before we get to Jarrett's I, notes? I do want to say the the important thing about the Retcon Corner here, remixes are not retcons. Right. Inversions are not retcons. Deconstructions are not retcons. When somebody does something you don't like, it's not a retcon. <laughs> essentially, essentially, from a plot perspective, there ain't none. Not like any huge ones in here. I mean, I think it's hard to talk about recons with the sequel trilogy because they're so new. And because... Disney is not tinkering with them in the way well, just, that Lucas has no, tinkered no. with the Remember, other films. The way we talk about this is this movie doesn't retcon anything right. else. Yeah, it is. Yes, that is true. Rise of Skywalker does a lot of retconning. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. So, but but in this movie, we're we're I, as far as I'm concerned, we're clear. Jarrett, what do you want to talk about in Max Rebo's retcon corner? Partially because I recently rewatched Jinji Tartoski's Clone Wars, uh, the 2D animated micro series is what it's called on uh, Disney Plus now. It's in with the vintage collection, which I think is a slap to the face of Jinji Tartoski, but I guess Disney has no uh, business with him anymore anyways. So anyways, um, or never did really, but... There's this whole thing about hyperspace tracking and that it's like they're surprised that it can be done now, which in some other Star Wars stories, it's not, it's just a normal thing. And I think there's two reasons for that. One being that this part of the plot of this movie is either influenced or very similar to the first regular season episode of uh, Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, not the original. And then also apparently there's a Easter egg that references it in Rogue One. I don't know if it was just a production design decision or if there was actual behind the scenes discussion about that, but so maybe not technically a retcon, just maybe more so from my point of view. Just sort of a connection there. Yeah. I mean, like you said, Rogue One came out before this, so there is a, pretty decent chance that that somebody at Disney was like, yeah, you should seed that in there. Let's move to segment six, our final segment, the lighter side of the force. There's a lot of humor in this film. I mean, I do think that like Force Awakens, this is a genuinely funny film in a lot of ways. Creature wise, the Porgs are my favorite thing to ever happen in Star Wars. I love them, especially every oh, time wow. I think of The Last Jedi, all I can think about is the scene of Chewie in the Millennium Falcon with the Porg screaming on the dashboard, which is like my favorite, like cute image. Is it interesting? Do people know that the part of the reason the Porgs are in this is because the island where they filmed is like full of puffins? They will, by the time they listen to this, 
if they listen to the episode that <laughs> well, came before, so we, which you obviously oh, haven't okay. had the benefit of doing. So the answer to your yeah. question is yes. We talked about this because okay. we watched the uh, the documentary for The Force Awakens, and they actually uh, filmed the end of that on the island. And in right. the documentary, you can see puffins everywhere. So right. yeah, that is why the porgs are are in there. Personally, I think it's great. No notes. But you also get the crystal foxes at the end, um, which are very, very cute, cool. but very pointy. Like those, yeah. They're very Final Fantasy, though. That's one of those yeah. kind of things where I'm like, they're cool, but I, you know, it, I don't think a lot about it a lot, but it is one of those things where it's like a little bit not Star Wars to me, but you know, whatever. I do like the, fa- I think it, they're called the Fathier. The the little yeah, racing creatures, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the bunny ears. Oh, yeah, they're very. Those to me are very um, dark crystal. Yes, um, I I connect Henson and Star Wars a lot in my yeah. brain, even though I don't actually know how much Henson <laughs> had anything to do the with Star Wars. Foxes are also a little bit dark crystal if they were like brown instead of. Yeah, I could see that, like or like a different color besides white. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, but lots of imaginative creatures in this in this particular yeah, film. The scene where BB-8 gets the belly rub was in The Force Awakens, but it's actually in this one when he runs up to mm. to Poe and Poe is like, yeah. you know, where's my droid? And then like when he runs up, he like gives him the little scritch belly rub yeah. like a dog. Yeah, I, I, I have mixed feelings. Generally, I like BB-8, but he's so toyetic that it's a li- he's a little distracting to me. But I mean, I like that he's practical. That makes him work better than a lot of things. I love droids. So, well, you know, you guys kind of talking about things that aren't this movie and some of the stuff you guys have been talking about. One of my favorite Star Wars things of all time is the 20 year old game now, I think, The Old Republic. And that's the first Star Wars thing I encountered that had like a droid that hated humans. Yeah. And just like, wanted to kill him. I don't remember that character's name, but that's more my kind of droid is like, you know, solo and, um, rogue one, those kind of droids, droids with bad attitudes. Because <laughs> yeah. Why not? I just like all droids, bad attitudes, cute attitudes, whatever. I think they're all great. <laughs> we, I think we both mentioned Kylo dragging Hux across the floor on like everything about, Hux in this film is very funny because he's so mistreated, but you can't feel bad for him because yeah. he's a fascist. So whatever. But yeah, like his arrogance in like basically yelling at Kylo because he's been con- in constant competition with Kylo since the beginning of The Force Awakens and then suddenly realizing that Kylo is the one in charge is like, it's very funny to me. The other thing I wanted to say is... Chewie doesn't have a lot to do, but what he does have to do is very funny. And I I also really liked the meeting again between R2 and Luke because we talked in The Force Awakens about how R2 has basically taken a depression nap for, since uh, Luke disappeared. And I yeah. I always like to... Like, R2 is one of those characters like Chewie, like Groot from Marvel, where you have to kind of imagine what he's saying based on how other characters react to him. But I do get this sense of like real betrayal from him um, in this film, like this idea that like he's been left behind, you know, by Luke, by another Skywalker. Right. Um, Because, you know, he has that relationship with Anakin in in the prequel um, stuff and in the ancillary prequel stuff. Um, But I love the scene where (laughs) 
where Luke says, he says something to the effect of like, nothing you can say can convince me. And then R2 starts showing him the original Leia message from the first film. And I think the way it's played could have been very like cheap. It could have been very like nostalgic and, oh, remember this from the first film. But I actually think the way it's played works in the context of their relationship because R2 inherently knows how to talk to Luke. And so Mm. I think that I didn't see it as being something that was supposed to make me feel things about the first film. I saw it as a genuine way that R2 is trying to connect with Luke and trying to like shake Luke out of his malaise on this island. Do you have a tier list of Star Wars up to this point? I do, but I also think, you know, we've kind of shared those on the Discord, which I encourage listeners to join if they haven't already. And I still, there's a couple things I want to rewatch before I finalize it. I, I will say, like I mentioned at the beginning, that for a while I was convinced that this was my favorite. And I have, you know, with this most recent reconsideration, put Empire back as the S tier. And this is probably at the top of my A tier, but that includes, the A tier includes this force awakens the original star wars but also part two of jinji tartoski's clone wars which is the way that it was always part one and part two um, but disney plus just makes it an actual like whole thing instead of episodic and part two is the one that actually works that way where part one is a bunch of 15 minute episodes of tv just mashed together I really encourage people to watch that. I think it's one of the more underappreciated pieces of Star Wars production, whatever you want to call it, media, I guess. Yeah, and I look forward to to hearing your at your ranking on on the Discord, which listeners can of course join um, via the link in our Twitter bio. We've had a couple of people join. It's been really really fun to ha- start yeah. having those conversations there. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Jared, to talk about this complex and and, uh, controversial film. (laughs) And obviously, I think that this has been a really great conversation between people who feel very differently about this film, which is not always the case when it comes to Star Wars. But a a productive one. Yeah, a productive one. I feel I think I've understand this film a little bit better after this conversation so that's always a good that's like the best case scenario (laughs) of of these types of conversations. All right, so unfortunately, I think everyone agrees that our final episode will be about one of the worst films in uh, in Star Wars. I haven't rewatched it, but I kind of doubt that anything I'm going to see is going to change my mind. I don't know. Let's see how it goes. We are going to be talking about. Just have with- to say, since I'm not going to get to talk about that movie, Babu Frick, Innocent. <laughs> okay. All right. I will. I will keep that in mind as we're talking about this. I'll have Ryan weigh in on that as well. We are being joined by Ryan um, to talk about Rise of Skywalker and to sort of wrap up our our conversations about these series. Jarrett, where can people find you online and in their headphones? <laughs> so, as we mentioned earlier, I am the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast. If you want me talking about more Star Wars for some reason, my (laughs) friend Tim and I did a Rogue One commentary on our Patreon. Listeners who are are already patrons, if you haven't checked that out, it's kind of a similar thing where like I love Rogue One and 
Tim had some criticisms of it and we got kind of go through those as we were watching the movie. It's a lot of stuff about, you know, the production issues and, and how some of that shows up in the movie and, and that kind of thing. But other regular guest, Melissa is the other co-host. So we're, we're wild, pretty things. You can find us in the podcast stuff. And then on most social media, I am Gur noise, which is G R R noise. I also have gurnoise.com. If you can't find the podcast, just go there and click on podcast. Perfect. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine and on letterboxd and storygraph at Melody Valentine. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Danny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are talking about all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can also find more writing on movies from me and Sam on moviejohn.com. That's moviejawn.com. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Join our Discord in our Twitter bio, as mentioned before. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. May the force be with you and get that monkey off your back.